Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Today we will discuss the possible arrest of Steve Bannon, the Department of Justice's move toward police investigations, and the case of the spies recently arrested in West Virginia. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to all that heavy-duty stuff, I wanted to talk about Gruden and his emails. Anybody have any thoughts on that, Barb? Do you want to start? Because you're our sports guru. Yeah, so John Gruden, the head coach of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders and and formerly the host of Monday Night Football for many years, um, resigned in disgrace after it was revealed that he was sending emails back and forth. He came out as part of an investigation, an internal investigation into uh, sexism in, in the Washington Redskins organization. But he sent emails that were racist, homophobic, misogynistic, um, you know, everything you can imagine under the sun. It was awful. Um, and he resigned, which is the right thing to do. But in doing so, he also said, um, you know, I'm, I don't have a blade of racism is in me. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, you know, when I hear that phrase, Jill, it's like to me, like, you know, how on Twitter, they have those little red flags these days for phrases you hear that cause you to immediately uh, be on guard. The, I don't have a racist bone in my body to me is, is the red flag is the red flag. But Kim, you pointed out, it wasn't even racist bone in my yeah, body. Yeah, he said, right? I don't have a racial bone in <laughs> what my is body that? after the first, <laughs> which was just, you know, first of all, when you bring out the racial bone, I knew that other <laughs> shoes were about to drop. And that's, it was after that, that the misogyny and anti-LGBTQ comments and everything came out. But it's like, what is that? What's the racial bone? Is that connected to the hip bone? Like, what No, it's is connected that? to the misogynist bone, I think. Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, his comments were beyond horrible. They weren't casual, even attempts at joking. They were really just blatant. And the good news here is that he did resign immediately. He's gone. Not immediately. It took... Well... (laughs) It was after the racial bone... Yeah. (laughs) And then after some more emails were revealed, it wasn't immediate. And apparently the NFL knew about these emails for some time, for a couple of months before action was taken. So it wasn't really until it got into the public domain that they they had to take action. So so was that so they had to. They never do the NFL. I mean, it just fills me with so much sadness. It makes me think about something that I thought was actually a real high watermark down here during the Black Lives Matter protests. Coach Saban, Alabama's coach, Roll Tide, made a video with his players and talked about the fact that racism was unacceptable and the support that he and his players had for each other. And it was really genuine. You could tell that they were being sincere and it was moving. And I thought it was an uplifting moment that, that wasn't just about the team. It was about the whole community. This is the opposite of that. And it just really fills me with disgust and sadness, even though he's gone. And I think, you know, some people may shrug and say, well, it's football. What do you expect? But this is a multi-billion dollar enterprise in American business. Um, and I, I think we need to, to call it out and eradicate it. I don't think we shrug and say, well, that's that's locker room talk. It's unacceptable um, in, in any business in America, and it's unacceptable in the NFL. Absolutely. Let's go to all the serious topics that we're going to talk about today. And Barb, would you go ahead first? 
Yeah, Jill, you know, we wanted to talk about the latest on the January 6th committee. They are getting deeper into their investigation. They've been issuing subpoenas to some of the witnesses that they want to question. And one of them is Steve Bannon. Uh, Of course, we all know he's the former Trump advisor and flamethrower. He received a subpoena to to testify before the committee, and he says he will not comply until a judge tells him to. So the committee plans to vote Tuesday uh, to decide whether to refer the case to the Department of Justice for a criminal prosecution for contempt of Congress. And Joyce, um, I want to start with you. Uh, Tell us how a criminal prosecution for contempt of Congress works. Yeah, so it's interesting. This is a process that's not used very often. I'm not sure that an executive branch witness has ever successfully been prosecuted by DOJ in one of these cases. But here's how it'll work. After the after the House votes to refer this case to DOJ for criminal prosecution, it'll go in the first instance to the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, and he will have to review the evidence and make a prosecutive decision. It's interesting to note that the statute here is actually a misdemeanor. It's a criminal statute, but it's a misdemeanor. It carries a mandatory minimum penalty of 30 days, and that could include being incarcerated for up to a year upon a conviction. So DOJ has to decide whether or not to prosecute once Congress refers, and that's a discretionary decision. DOJ isn't obligated to prosecute. Some folks have mentioned the fact that the language of the statute sounds mandatory. The U.S. attorney shall present it to the grand jury. But in reality, DOJ has always maintained that it has discretion. And its discretion is cabined by the standards that Barb and I are really used to. You don't indict a case unless you have sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction and to sustain a conviction. That means unless you can prove all the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Here with Bannon in pretty flagrant violation of the law, that's not the troubling part. What's more difficult for DOJ may be the next step in the analysis, which requires them to consider whether the prosecution is in the national interest and whether there are other alternatives for obtaining justice. I think those those are more nuanced, don't you think, Barb? Yeah, and I think strategically, they may not be best served by going the criminal route. You know, if they do a criminal case, the purpose there is to punish somebody for violating the law, and that may have a deterrent effect on other witnesses who get served with these subpoenas. But if what they really want is Bannon's testimony, I'm not sure this is the most efficient way to get it. Jill, what do you think? What other options do uh, the, the committee members have for enforcing their subpoenas? I think they have two other really good uh, alternatives. There is, of course, the civil um, contempt that they could bring to court. That could take a long time. I'm not saying it has to. And during Watergate, we had courts responding much more quickly, as in immediately. And even going to the Supreme Court took us only a few months. It did not take us years. So that is one route. The other is to use their inherent power, where they can send the sergeant-at-arms out to arrest someone, and they can incarcerate. And there used to be a jail in Congress that apparently no longer exists. So they've talked about, well, we'd have to rent a hotel room and keep them under guard in a hotel room. And that is a possibility. And at some points, I mean, I think people feel 
that it's time for Congress to stand up for its rights and for the powers that it has, and that there's no point in having these powers if they don't use them. And so invoking their inherent power and arresting someone and holding that person until they agree to testify. And the same would be true in a civil case. The judge would order compliance, and until that person complied, they could be held and, and incarcerated um, and, until then. And we've had witnesses in the past, um, if we go back to uh, the Whitewater investigation, Susan McDougall was in jail for 22 months because she wouldn't testify before a grand jury. And that's the same sort of analogy as refusing to testify before Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see them wait until he has, you know, actually refused and not shown up, not just for the subpoena ducus tecum. I always wanted to say that on television or radio, <laughs> uh, as opposed to a subpoena ad testificandum. Hardly ever get to say those words on, on any kind of broadcast. Look at you but, throwing out your Latin, Jill yeah, Winebanks. I love it. Query clausum frigate. Okay, so... That's my opinion, is they should do one of those two options and try to get him to testify. And by showing that they're doing that, they might encourage, as much as using criminal contempt, they might encourage other people to cooperate as well. And the only issue that stands between them and getting the testimony is his invocation of the name Donald Trump saying, I have executive privilege. And as we all know, Donald Trump can claim executive privilege, and he can weigh in on that under the GSA versus Nixon or Nixon versus GSA, but it basically is definitely not dispositive. And what is dispositive is when the sitting president, who is the only president who has presidential executive privilege, says, I'm not invoking executive privilege. And President Biden has already said that. So he has no reason not to testify, nor does any of, nor do any of the others who have been subpoenaed. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that vote um, on Tuesday. The other witness um, that I find intriguing, Kim, let me ask you about, is Jeffrey Clark. He's the former uh, DOJ official who was sort of like involved in this palace drama of trying to elbow his way into the acting attorney general job by doing Trump's bidding. Um, the committee has now subpoenaed him, too. Do you think he'll go the same route as Bannon and say, you know, you can't make me? Um, and what, what are the kinds of concerns that Clark might have about testifying? Right. Raise ipsa loquitur. Oh, Wait, nice. does it not work the same way? I just wanted to say some Latin. All right, sorry. I only know so, the, yes. the ones from Bugs Bunny, like, you know, when they do with the Roadrunner and they would talk about, uh, like, Coyote, Fastest, Roadrunner, <laughs> fake Latin. I remember that. How about a so, writ of Rachmanis? Maybe Joyce oh, will get that one. Love it. All right. So Jeffrey Clark, you're right. That's the former Justice Department official. Um, who proposed during his tenure delivering a letter to Georgia state officials and others to push for a delay in certifying the results. Uh, His fealty to then-President Trump caused Trump to try to install him, elevate him to acting attorney general, and he only 
uh, was unable to do that because uh, lots of other folks threatened to quit. Um, So certainly he is at the center of this and he has been subpoenaed. So we'll see. I mean, this is why I, and not to disagree with Barb, I think that pursuing criminal um, contempt is important because it does serve as a deterrent. It really shows uh, that this committee is serious in uh, holding everyone accountable. And I think the testimony of Jeffrey Clark is certainly something the committee wants to hear, even more so than Steve Bannon. I think the the members of this committee probably already know what Steve Bannon is going to say or is not going to say. But since Jeffrey Clark is a key figure in the center of the actions leading up to um, January 6th and and in the denial, um, the refusal to accept the results of the election, I think his testimony is more important. And I think the committee has made uh, a, a calculation that by proving that, hey, if if you do not uh, if you do not respond to this subpoena request, you can you too may face uh, an indictment by a federal grand jury. Um, and so it's probably in your interest to do as Mark Meadows and Cash Patel are doing, at least engage with the committee um, to sort mm-hmm. of push off that. I don't know if they're quite cooperating yet, but they're not taking the Steve Bannon approach saying, I'm not going to come and, and I'm not going to show up. So I think that's one reason that the committee is going the criminal route instead of going the civil route. Yeah. And, you know, you see that that's the phrase they use in the press all the time, that they're engaging with the committee. What do you suppose that means? I think that means they're saying at the very least or their attorneys at the very least are saying, hold up, let's see what we can do. Yeah, kind of negotiation, accommodation process. Exactly. They're prop. They probably do not want to be indicted. Uh, in a way that Steve Bannon maybe doesn't care so much about. Uh, And Mm -hmm. they're trying to buy some time at the very least to figure out what to do next, which again is showing that this approach that the committee the committee is taking is at least somewhat effective if they are yeah. uh, taking this approach. I remember Mark Meadows was in the, that body. He was a former congressman. Um, and so these are people that he knows. So I think that's what it means at this point. Uh, I just wanted to add to what she was saying is that one of the things we're not talking about is that in the McGann case, the courts ended up not having to decide really uh, at a higher level because he ended up cooperating um, under certain terms that were negotiated. And maybe they're looking at that as a uh, sort of a role model for how to proceed. And basically, I think the courts made it clear that you can claim privileges if you show up. But you can't say, I'm going to claim privilege and I'm not going to show up, therefore. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's one of the reasons why action is necessary when someone says, I simply will not come. Yeah, that's a good point. Privileges are supposed to be exercised on a question-by-question basis, yes. know, not just what's your name. Um, I wanted to ask, maybe Joyce, I'll ask you this. Why do you suppose we, we don't spend a lot of time or hear people giving a lot of credence to this this third option of inherent contempt. I mean, that one strikes me as the most efficient, right? I mean, the sergeant at arms from uh, the House can just go arrest him. Why, why aren't they using that? Yeah, you know, Congress hasn't used inherent contempt in over 100 years. So there would be a lot of litigation surrounding its usage. And you can imagine the impact, right, if, 
if uh, the sergeant at arms, this infamous person that we hear a lot about, suddenly arrested Steve Bannon and took him off. This could really upset the fragile balance that's going on in this country right now. We're a very divided country. People are very dug in on their beliefs. And and one of the real problems here is how do you enforce Congress's oversight prerogatives without lighting the powder keg, right? I mean, there are so many of us who just want justice here, who just want accountability. I feel very strongly that Congress has to enforce its subpoenas. But they do have to be mindful and thoughtful about the impact that this has on the country moving forward. Yeah, I think you're right, and I'm sure that's the reason. But I remember, I think it was Robert Mueller once said that um, the first duty of the leader of an organization is to protect the mission of that organization, to be a good steward of the organization. Too bad the Republicans have forgotten that, right? Yeah. If you have a power and you don't lose it, that power erodes, you know, use it or lose it. And so Congress does have this power of inherent contempt. And if they're afraid to use it because, oh, people might get upset, then they've effectively lost that. I mean, Congress is a co-equal branch of government. They have subpoena power to come in and testify. They don't need a court to come tell Steve Bannon to testify. Congress has told him to testify with this subpoena. And so by thumbing his nose at it, uh, he has, you know, violated their uh their powers. And and so they should be enforcing it. So I don't disagree with you. I'm sure you're right. And after what happened on January 6th, it would be sort of ironic for them to provoke yet another type of violent response. But um, I do think that their Congress has been too timid in um, exercising its own powers. Like Jill, how, why is it? It's a tough balancing exercise. The one thing that worries me a little bit about inherent contempt is the specter of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene demanding that people appear, yeah. appear in front of Congress or be arrested, you know, after the midterm election. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Jill, let me just end with one last question for you. Why is it that back in the Watergate days with Nixon, you could get into court in a matter of days and get an answer? Um, whereas now it seems like Donald Trump was very successful in running out the clock during his administration because the courts would take, you know, months and months before they would actually get a final decision in these cases. What's what's changed? Why is that? So much has changed. We are living in an alternative universe now. Back then, we had bipartisanship so that, first of all, there wasn't this um, total blockage. You wouldn't have to worry about anybody interfering and that there would be cooperation. And there was a belief in the rule of law, even by Richard Nixon. Despite the crimes he committed, he actually believed in the rule of law. And as to why courts acted fast, they weren't playing politics the way I see courts doing now. And I think when you say Trump has been successful in running out the clock, Trump was successful in filling the courts and getting what he wanted at the Department of Justice by interfering in ways that we, as former members of the Department of Justice, know are totally wrong. Where communications, one of the big things in Watergate was the communications between the White House in the form of John Dean and the criminal division, which were horrible and terrible back then, and which we thought would never happen again, but are clearly the connections between the two are partly the reason why we're not getting the government to support the courts acting. And the courts are just delay, delay, delay. And they know that the Supreme Court has delayed on so many issues, not just on enforcement of subpoenas. It took six years for one recent case. I mean, when something takes six years, 
Justice delayed is justice denied. And there is no justice in waiting six years for an answer from the court. So I think we're just going to have to do better. We may need more uh, judges. There may not be enough judges to keep us going. Um, So uh, there were just a real sense of justice worked back then, and democracy worked, and bipartisanship worked, and we got things done. And we subpoenaed the final tapes April 16th, and on July 24th, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor, and on August 9th, Richard Nixon was out of office. So that was months, and that's the days that I hope we can go back to. Hey, Joyce, you've always been a good student. Have you been studying for your Helix quiz? You know, the Helix quiz was so easy and so much fun. I didn't have to study at all. I just hopped on the website, added in my preferences for a good night's sleep, and the next thing I know, we had a mattress delivered to our front door that was perfect for me. How about you? Yeah, you know, the Helix quiz lets you answer a lot of questions to get you exactly the kind of mattress that you're looking for. Uh, You know, they they know that one size does not equal all. Uh, Any of you, Jill or Kim, take the Helix quiz? I did, and I was most amazed when this mattress for a king-size bed arrived rolled up in a clearly small package. And I couldn't believe that it was going to end up being an actual mattress. But it blows itself up when you take it out of the box. And it's quite amazing. And I I don't know, Kim, did you have that experience? I did. It's really cool uh, just to see how easy it is. And you know, I have insomnia and I am particular about my bed. So it's important to me to have one that is just right. And it's so great to be able to take a quiz and to have that confidence that the mattress that arrives is going to be just what you need. When you take the Helix quiz, you'll be matched with the perfect Helix mattress. It'll be exactly what you want, something just right for you. Why buy a mattress made for someone else? Just go to helixsleep.com sisters to take their two-minute sleep quiz to match with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. From soft to firm, plus size and cooling, they have it all. Not to mention that it's gotten many doctor and chiropractor recommendations. Helix mattresses come with a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. It gets delivered right to your door, and they'll pick it up if needed, so you never have to go to a mattress store again. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com sisters. That's helixsleep.com sisters for up to $200 off and two free pillows. And look for the link in our show notes. Thanks to Helix for sponsoring this episode. And we thank you, our listeners, for supporting Helix. So we know that during the Trump administration, there was almost a complete abdication of the Department of Justice uh, oversight duty when it came to local police departments. Well, since the Trump administration has come to an end, we have seen uh, an inundation of requests being made to Joe Biden's Justice Department under Merrick Garland uh, to look into police departments for various claims of misconduct there. And 
the DOJ has been having a tough time keeping up with all of those requests. So Jill, tell us about this. Tell us about some of the requests that the Department of Justice uh, has been getting to look at police misconduct. What's been going on? I think we have to look back to the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd because that is what has really focused the public attention on police misconduct. And that has led to many communities. Those of us in the Midwest know there are two Kansas cities. Both Kansas cities, Missouri and Kansas, um, have requested an investigation. And what we're finding and what's being admitted is the Department of Justice is short of staff and simply cannot handle the number of requests. They are trying now to raise the budget so that they can have appropriate resources dedicated to this. But until they add resources, they're saying they can only take on so many at a time. And um, I know that, for example, the executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project, who is one of the requesters in the Kansas cities, uh, said it's a system failure that we don't have a pattern or practice investigation here. They feel that they have the, all the qualifications that requires a federal investigation of wrongdoing in the police department. And so, Jill, I just want to, just yes. so that I'm clear, is it that there are there's an increase in actual incidents um, or in in patterns and practices of 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 things that people think should get the Department of Justice attention? Or is this just an ongoing, like sort of a backlog that extends back into the Trump administration that now these folks are saying, okay, Joe Biden, okay, Mary right. Garland, take a look at this. And there just seems to be a bottleneck. Yeah, I, th- I think that it is, it's probably a combination of more awareness, but the awareness came during the Black Lives Matter, which was during the Trump administration. And people were making these requests for a long time and they were hopeful that it was just that the Department of Justice was ignoring them because Trump didn't care. Um, but it now turns out that unless they uh, do some additions to staffing, they care, but they cannot have enough people to handle it. Uh, Vanita Gupta has acknowledged the Department of Justice's limitations and pointed to a request to increase the Civil Rights Division's budget by $25 million for next year. They want yeah. to add 60 new attorneys. Well, and I, want to go to, I want to go to Barb for that, yeah. just to get a more okay. of a sense of, might there be valid reasons that the DOJ may not act on every single request um, to open an investigation, either a specific investigation into wrongdoing or a pattern and practice investigation? Or is this to you, looking like really a, a capacity limitation situation? Yeah, I, I think it's very much a capacity limitation situation. You know, we, we never know all the factors that go into when an investigation gets opened or not. And so some, some things may be fact specific. But I saw this problem during the Obama administration. Uh, oftentimes there is a will to open an investigation, and they simply don't have the attorneys to to look into it. The Civil Rights Division has a finite number of lawyers. 
They tend to focus on the large departments, I think, you know, correctly, uh, figuring that if they can um, improve constitutional policing in big cities, like we had one in Detroit, there's one, there's one in Seattle, there's one in Cleveland, New Orleans. If you can improve police departments in those big cities, you're going to have a bigger impact because they deal with more people every day than some of the smaller cities or mid-sized cities. Um, but I think one flaw in the way the department handles these cases is that they keep them on really close hold in-house. It's only the Civil Rights Division out of D.C. that will work on these cases. They might partner with the U.S. Attorney's Office, but they wouldn't allow U.S. Attorney's Offices to run them on their own. And I think this comes from a good place of, you know, wanting to make sure that standards are very high and that there's uniformity in the way decisions are made. But in just about every other kind of case, these powers are delegated to the U.S. Attorney's Offices. You know, to, if you want to file a public corruption case or even a death penalty case, it's you know, U.S. Attorney's Offices that are doing that work. And so I, I remember we wanted to open one in a mid-sized city in Michigan. Um, and we had a fantastic uh, team of lawyers who had already done one in Detroit quite successfully. Um, and they declined because they said they didn't have the capacity to do mid-sized cities. They were only focusing on big cities where they had the, the bodies to do it. And so I think one way mm -hmm. to become a force multiplier is to utilize U.S. Attorney's Offices in partnership with DOJ lawyers so that they can address not just the big cities, because it might be mid-sized cities where they have problems. Yeah. The other thing they did during the Obama administration that I think could be useful is they had something short of pattern or practice prosecutions, and that was a, a voluntary self-report and request for technical assistance. They were doing that through the COPS program. So, you know, we had a shooting in one of our communities here, and the police department tried to get ahead of it. They were very proactive. They said, we'd love to take advantage of this and get help. And so they sent out technical assistance with consultants and trainers to work on their policies and their training to improve things that way. And I think yeah. that is a good model. But of course, that only works for police departments who have the will to change and the desire to change. And and we saw that actually happening out of Louisville, for example, after the killing of Breonna mm -hmm. Taylor. Uh, the, the local officials there asked the DOJ uh, for to do that very thing, to come in and, and provide assistance to them. And, and we know Attorney General Merrick Garland la launched investigations there and in Minneapolis, obviously, after the killing of George Floyd. And he came in, Joyce, promising to use the, the, the full force of the Department of Justice and bring back things like consent decrees. Um, that had really been abandoned during the Trump administration. So is what we're seeing now um, in these uh, unrequited requests to um, for the DOJ to take a look at these police departments, is that Merrick Garland reneging on that promise or is something else going on here? No, I think Merrick Garland's commitment is solid here. The number three person in the Justice Department, the associate for the first time ever as a former head of the Civil Rights Division, there's strong leadership on these issues. The problem isn't DOJ. It's how many police departments and prison systems are really dysfunctional, are really engaging mm. in misconduct. In those cases, police departments and prisons are worked together in the Civil Rights Division Special Projects Unit. They're very labor-intensive matters. I know that firsthand because, Barb, we're actually the, the exception. The Alabama prison investigation was the first time DOJ had ever let a U.S. attorney's office take the lead in working up the... the um, 
report that was necessary to open the investigation, we had immaculate support from our colleagues at DOJ because they were the subject matter experts and we needed them, but they were out of bodies to do the work. And so it was prosecutors in my office primarily who did what was a year-long investigation. And these weren't government employees who worked from 8.30 to 5 and went home. They went and visited prisons after hours and on weekends. They were holding meetings late at night. We were going to libraries all across our district and meeting with family members of incarcerated people. You've got to get documents. You've got to try to elicit information from the prison system. You need to get a great deal of technical information about the prisons, whether you're doing a police investigation or a prison one in in this area. They are simply hard to do. So here are the statistics on, on DOJ and these investigations. During the Obama administration, 25 police investigations were opened. That's about three a year. In the four years of the Trump administration, any guesses? Two. One. An average of Mm. 0.25 a year. You were far too generous, Kim. Um, (laughs) In the first 10 months of the Biden administration, they've now opened three police investigations. They did that while also opening several large prison matters, including statewide investigations, not just a single prison, but statewide in Georgia and Texas, also pursuing statewide investigation in Mississippi and conducting litigation regarding the statewide prison system in Alabama, my case. These folks have been hard at work. They need the budgetary increases that Jill talked about. They need the personnel. You know, the bottom line here is that budgets are moral documents. If we really want to insist on constitutional policing in this country, then we need to you know, fully fund the agency that can uniquely work those cases. And the the last thing I'll say is that these consent decrees don't go away once you enter into them with police departments. You have to continue to work them and enforce them and make sure that constitutional policing is going on. These are hard work. They're labor intensive, and we should support DOJ's work. Joyce, silly Joyce, but if we if we did all that constitutional policing, that would cost money. We might have to raise taxes. And how would the billionaires fund their space program? <laughs> you know, Barb, you've absolutely got me there. I just don't have an answer to that one. Although it is interesting to note that there's really good data that says that when we use better policing techniques, we reduce crime and make communities safer, this whole notion of criminal justice reform. So maybe Elon can still go to Mars and we can have safe constitutional policing at the same time. And it saves money from all the settlements that they have to pay for wrongful death. One other issue here is that we're talking about pattern or practice investigations, which are labor-intensive, but there are also some investigations of single incidents at a police department where the FBI takes on a criminal investigation of, for example, the recent um, kicking of a handcuffed prone defendant by a a police officer. I mean, it's a horrible thing, and the FBI should be investigating that they that can lead to finding out that there's a pattern or practice in that community, but at least that gets investigated at a federal level. Well, and those criminal prosecutions matter. We we did a lot of them during my time in office. They create deterrence. The police officers know that they'll be held accountable. That's a really important part of DOJ's work here. 
And I think it's important for that work to be visible, especially after the last two years for calling out for criminal justice reform, seeing it fizzle, sadly, in Congress, seeing it fizzle, or at least not be as robust as people wanted uh, in local municipalities and in state legislatures. So hopefully that bottleneck uh, is freed up pretty soon. Do y'all remember Trump talking to the international, I think it was the International Association yep. of Police Chiefs, and, yep. and he tells the crowd, don't be too careful when you're putting yep. people you've arrested in the squad car, right? He sort of motions, it's okay to rough them up. And the crowd laughs, and he even gets a little applause. That was such a sickening moment. We have so mm-hmm. much work to do here. Joyce, are you using Thrive Cosmetics? I am using so much of the Thrive product right now. It's absolutely amazing. Love the mascara like we all do. And my newest innovation is I got the white highlighter. It's sort of like an eyeshadow in a stick. It makes my eyes look much bigger than they've ever looked in my whole life. I'm in love with it. How about you, Jill? Well, First of all, I have to tell you that my friends have commented on how great your eyes have looked lately on television. So I just That's want you to so know that sweet. it's, it's working. All thrive. It is it all is. thrive. And I am a longtime user of Thrive. I love the mascara. I loved it so much. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try some of their other products. I also tried their cleansing lotion, which is fabulous. It does not dry your skin out. It doesn't sting your eyes. It's perfect. And it takes off lash mascara with no problem at all. None of that black smudge that you get from any other mascara. It's wonderful. And I know, Kim, you like it too, right? I do. Actually, it's funny. I got a comment from a viewer who saw me on television and said, you know, I I enjoy and appreciate your commentary, but I also want to tell you that your eyelashes are amazing. And I, I said, it's Thrive. It's Thrive Cosmetics. It's so great. It lasts all day. And a wonderful thing about it is at night, often with mascara, when you take it off at night, you take off half your lashes with it. This comes right off. It leaves your lashes feeling really healthy. What about you, Barb? Um, this will surprise you, but I, I've never actually received a compliment about my makeup. <laughs> so I'm going to try Thrive. I think you look wonderful right now. You're so sweet. <laughs> you will love Thrive, particularly because we know you care so much about it being a cruelty-free product. Yeah, that's, that's one of so the best features, you- that um, Thrive Cosmetics are made with uh, vegan and cruelty-free products. Thrive Cosmetics makes high-performance, vegan, 100% cruelty-free products without the use of parabens or sulfates. Their clean beauty, clinically proven formulas show off your best features and even improve your skin. Thrive Cosmetics never tests on animals, which is really important to me, and are Leaping Bunny and PETA certified as 100% vegan and cruelty-free. On top of that, they have a bold mission that's truly bigger than beauty. For every product purchased, Thrive donates to their nonprofit partners with funds or products. It's how Thrive makes sure that they're a beauty brand that goes beyond being skin deep. We love everything Thrive Cosmetics, especially their new holiday sets available this season. For a limited time, you can save up to 25% on some of the best sellers. What is that, like red and green cosmetics for the holiday season? <laughs> I didn't even know there were holiday sets. I'm going shopping right now. 
<laughs> right. And I'm going to try right away Joyce's recommendation of the liner stick. We're going to try that uh, immediately and getting my discount by using our own little code. Thrive Cosmetics products are the best we've ever used, and their Bigger Than Beauty mission is truly inspiring. You're going to love them as much as we all do. Visit thrivecosmetics.com slash sisters for 15% off your first order. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's Thrive, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash sisters for 15% off your first order. So if I was writing headlines, I'd call the husband and wife team who were charged by prosecutors in the Northern District of West Virginia this week, the peanut butter and jelly wannabe spies. Kim, can, <laughs> can you describe the charges that were filed by DOJ in West Virginia and the process that was used to charge them? Sure. So, you know, one of the things I was really excited about doing this podcast is that I thought it would give us an opportunity to talk about some areas of law that don't get a lot of attention normally. But even I did not anticipate (laughs) that we would be talking about the Atomic Energy Act or an Annapolis, Maryland couple, you know, who, you know, probably any soccer mom and dad that you might know might be living next door to you. Um, who might be spies using sandwiches to pass uh, secrets. But here we are. So yes, this is a case uh, involving Jonathan Toby and his wife, Diana, who are charged under the Atomic Energy Act, um, which prohibits, among other things, people who have access to or control over sensitive information or restricted data from disclosing that to any individual or persons or or attempting, which is important, we'll come back to that, attempting or conspiring to disclose it with the intent to injure the United States or secure an advantage to any foreign nation. So that brings us to Annapolis, Maryland, with Jonathan and Diana Toby, who, according to news reports, were your average suburban couple um, with children living, uh, you know, being an active members of their community. Well, they were charged by the Department of Justice in a plot to transmit information related to the design of our nuclear submarines to a foreign nation. Uh, Jonathan worked uh, in the uh in the naval, in the navy, uh, where he had access to this nuclear uh, submarine data, and according to the FBI and the Department of Justice and the Naval Criminal Investigative Services, um, as an employee of the Department of Navy, uh, he was charged with operating uh, certain reactors for nuclear-powered warships. And warships, and according to the complaint, he sent a package. To a foreign government, it does not disclose which government it is, but he sent a package to a foreign government um, containing a sample of what is only called restricted data with instructions for establishing a covert relationship to purchase additional restricted data, according to the complaint. Um, He was sending it to an individual who he believed to be a foreign national, but it turns out it was actually an undercover FBI agent. 
Um, he continued this correspondence over time for several months. And here's where we get to the sandwich part. Uh, at one point, there was an attempt to make a drop, whereas both Jonathan and his wife, Diana, who served as a lookout, um, placed a card uh, containing this data inside half a peanut butter sandwich um, at a prearranged dead drop location um, after FBI agents received, re- retrieved that card and sent a notice uh, to Jonathan with some cryptocurrency payment or, or saying that a cryptocurrency payment had been made, he made another dead drop, this time placing the information inside a chewing gum package, after which he and his wife were arrested. So it's important to point out at this point the foreign um, the foreign nationals who he contacted reported this to the U.S. government almost immediately, which allowed the FBI and federal investigators to intercept this plan. So there was never a, a, a real danger of this information getting out. Uh, but it's actually quite remarkable when you think, you know, you don't know who your neighbors are. They could be very nice people or they could be dropping um national secrets in peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, you know, Barb, you have, I think, such a strong background in national security. When we were U.S. attorneys, you chaired actually the National Security Advisory Committee to the Attorney General. But before that, you were the ATAC. Maybe you'll talk about that a little bit and also talk about the fact that the Tobys were charged via complaint, not indictment. And I'm curious about whether that suggests to you that there might be additional or different charges coming down the road. Yeah, you know, a complaint is a more reactive document. You use it to to be able to effectuate an arrest and hold the person, but they still have to be indicted before they can be tried on a charge. And so um, this is often a placeholder while you're still sort of sorting out what all the evidence is. So it could very well be, Joyce, that there is a search warrant that gets executed on devices and computers or even their home that might reveal additional evidence of crimes. Um, I think that it's really interesting here too to read, think about the role of Mrs. Toby Um, She is described in there as assisting her husband uh, in that she accompanied him on two of these dead drops. They did, I think, three separate drops where they dropped, in addition to the peanut butter sandwich that Kim described, there's another one where they dropped, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Toby dropped a a SIM card in a Band-Aid package and another one where he put it in a chewing gum package and dropped it at these. He had um, like a food wrapper obsession or something. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you read the complaint, but if you read uh, just to, you know, psychoanalyze so often these people, in addition to having this money goal, and he did, he wanted money big time. And that was his, his goal. There is this like love of the intrigue. And they quote a lot of his encrypted emails back and forth to the person he thought was a government representative. It was actually an undercover FBI agent. And you can see, like, he uses terminology, like, uh, as if he's in a spy novel. You know, he keeps referring to his, the person he's talking to is my friend. Oh, hello, my friend. Perhaps our tradecraft. <laughs> you know, he just, he, he, he sounds like um, dialogue in a John uh, Le Carre novel. And it's, yeah. it's really interesting. In I think. my old but office, what, Barb, when we saw stuff like that, we used to say, that boy ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
there are a couple of things I think worth mentioning from a national security perspective that I think are really interesting about this case. One is this is what's called a false flag operation, where you are appearing to be on be acting on behalf of a government when in fact it's uh, it's an undercover operation. And what's interesting is we don't know what what the other other country is, but there is a real other country involved here because the complaint says that Jonathan Toby actually reached out to a foreign government and sent them some of this restricted information in a package and said, um, you know, I, essentially, I'd like to do business with you. I, I have access to all this restricted information and I want to sell it to you. That foreign government actually turned around and came and, and reached out to the United States and said, hey, get a load of this guy. You got a, you got somebody in your ranks who wants to sell secrets. Here you go. And the FBI said, thank you very much. We'll take it from here. And then the FBI posed as being a representative from this government. So that's called a false flag. And in fact, along the way, Mr. Toby, again, loving these spy novels a little too much, says, I want to make sure I can trust you and I want to test you. And I want you to send me a signal that tells me that you're real, that you're really from this foreign government. And this is on the up and up and I'm not being suckered by some, you know, um, sting operation here. And so they said, very well, uh, tell us what you would like. He said, I'm going to come to Washington, D.C. on Memorial Day weekend and I want you to send me some kind of signal um, from your embassy. And they said, very well, we shall take care of that. So whatever this was, the embassy in some way put up some signal. I don't know if it was a light or if it, there's some indication it may have been a flag that they flew some flag that he would know. They don't describe what it is and it may be that they don't want to you know, reveal that sort of tradecraft. But whatever this foreign country was, they actually went along and, and did I don't know, some kind of signal. Uh, and so I don't yeah. know what that was. So that's interesting. And I think the other thing to look for in this case that comes up so often in these false flag cases or any kind of sting operation is a defense of entrapment. That they'll say, you know, you set me up. There was no real government. This was, I was just communicating with an FBI agent. And I think the reason that that usually fails and is likely to fail here is that it was he who initiated this. He reached out to a foreign government and said, I would like to do this, uh, this, this kind of transaction. I want to sell what I have in exchange for money. Um, and so I think that will be defeated. It's a very serious crime. He was entrusted with nuclear uh, weaponry secrets on behalf of our government, and he attempted to monetize that by selling it to a foreign government. This is punishable by life in prison, and so it's mm -hmm. a it's a very significant case, despite some of the you know sort of amusing facts about peanut butter sandwiches. Jill, put on your your uh, old, an older hat that you wore as general counsel to the army. How serious are these charges? I mean, as Barb points out, right? He was trying to be a player, but he didn't quite get there never really put the country at risk because we had a cooperative foreign government, never actually sold secrets. So are these sort of charges serious? I mean, the Tobys just were very unsuccessful in the business of spying. Should they really face this punishment of life imprisonment? For me, the answer is clearly yes. And let me explain a, a few things. One, in some ways, we were very lucky that the foreign country cooperated with us. They turned over this package that he sent to the FBI liaison in that country. And Barbara's right, we don't know what the country is, but whoever they were, they weren't our enemy because if they were, they would have taken the information. And part of the information that he was selling is something that has led to an unfortunate episode with France because it relates to submarine technology and the silencing of the submarine sounds, which in times of modern warfare where surface missiles, surface vessels are very um, 
endangered by the ability of our drones and, and missiles now, submarines become a very important fighting force for America. And their being silent is one of the ways that they can accomplish their mission because that's the only way they can be detected. They're too far under the sea to be seen, but they can be heard. So what he had offered was something that was a very serious uh, jeopardy to our ability to stay uh, protected by using submarines. And so we're lucky that the country that he approached cooperated with us, and otherwise we might not have known about it. His motive remains a little bit unclear. He was only initially asking for $100,000, which given the value of what he had to sell, seems like he was really underpricing himself. And um, so if money was a motive, but Barb may be right that it was just he loved being the spy. And I recommend to everyone listening, and we should put on our show notes the complaint because it does include all the email, not email, these were encrypted. He was, by the way, very good at this encryption stuff, but he was very bad, obviously, at falling for going to a dead drop in the open. Originally, he he was a terrible spy. He was a bad spy. That's for sure. I mean, it's, I mean, we've all seen enough spy movies to know that dead drops are a dangerous place to be seen. And he finally agreed. He fought with them first saying, I'm not, I don't want to be seen in public, but he ended up agreeing to it. And um, it's partly because the agent who was communicating with him was persuasive about why it made sense from a tradecraft standpoint. Um, but yes, yeah, I think these are serious, even though it was only an unsuccessful attempt. I think it was very serious. And we could talk more about unsuccessful uh, you know, attempts being crimes. Uh, and Kim, I, I agree I agree that it's very serious. And also, if he'd seen Austin Powers, he would know that he should have asked for at least $100 million. Um, But no, but on the seriousness of this, this makes me think of a lot of times when you see FBI investigations into terrorist plots. Those are usually intercepted pretty early on by federal officials um, who allow it to play out in order to make out their case. And if you were to say, well, just because it was attempted and it wasn't act, it didn't actually go through, um, then you're, what you're saying is the fact that FBI agents in this case and in those cases were, were adept enough to stop it and pre- protect people, protect national security, protect people's lives, that somehow that means that these folks can get off more easily. No, they didn't know that it was the FBI. They really thought that they were carrying out a really heinous crime. So I agree with you. That shouldn't that shouldn't make the punishment any more lenient. You know, there are so many statutes like the one that you read, the statute that's used in this case, Kim, that include attempt as part of the offense, right? They say, yes. if you rob a bank or if you attempt to rob a bank. But the question is the dividing line. How do you know what's the difference between just thinking about something and attempting to commit a crime? Who are we going to lock up? Barb, can you talk a little bit about how you looked at those issues? Yeah, and we talk about this in my criminal law class as well. You know, we refer to these kinds of crimes as inchoate crimes. These are kind of crimes that have not yet been completed. We say inchoate down here. Inchoate. Nice, nice. Um, You know, it's the idea is, you know, having a bad idea alone is not a crime. So if you think to yourself, I could kill the president, that's not a crime. It's, you know, but obviously if you do commit the crime and you kill the president, that is a crime. What about the stages in between? 
How close do you have to get before it actually becomes a crime? And that's why we have crimes like attempt and conspiracy and solicitation, because they suggest that if we get close enough, what you have done is already so dangerous that we want to stop it. And we don't want to have to wait until people are dead or the harm has been committed, or in this case, the, the secrets have been sold before we prosecute somebody. In the FBI, Joyce, when we were practicing, the FBI always referred to this as being intercepting or disrupting a plot left of boom. And left boom of boom. was the moment on a timeline. If you could picture a timeline, um, boom would be the event of you know the death, the explosion, the killing, the bombing, whatever it is. And they didn't want to get to boom. They wanted to stop the crime somewhere left of boom. Now, I will tell you, the debate we always had with the FBI is they wanted to be as far left as possible because they didn't want there to be any bloodshed. They wanted to take this person down, you know, yesterday. And the prosecutors often wanted to keep it going a little bit longer because they wanted to make sure they had sufficient evidence to prove the case. Uh, you know, say, I don't really have good evidence of intent yet. I think you need to do one more conversation where he explains what it is he's trying to do uh, and it needs to come out of his mouth. You know, can you help us uh, do that? Or we want to do some sort of controlled delivery where we can see if he really does intend to go through with this thing. Um, and so that is a tension back and forth. Sometimes you may see a case get thrown out of court if you don't get close enough to boom. And so um, that's a, a, a really difficult uh, matter. But, you know, in this case, he didn't actually commit the, the this. Well, he actually did commit the substantive offense because that very initial batch that he sent to the foreign country was um, that kind of uh, restricted information. Oftentimes in these sting cases, the person doesn't actually get to the point of committing the crime. You know, you think about the case out of uh, Portland, Oregon, where someone was going to blow up um, a bomb at a tree lighting ceremony. In that case, they actually gave him what he thought was a device. It was a dummy device. And then when he pressed it, he was arrested. He can't be charged with committing the crime, but he can be charged with attempting to commit the crime. And he is no less dangerous because he failed, because he truly believed that was the crime he was committing. Yeah, people shouldn't get a break just because they have bad aim. I think that's the, the nuance that underlies attempt crimes. If we have time, I have a funny story of a case that I handled that was one of those where it was the FBI had to decide when to stop the crime. They had heard that two mafia hitmen were going to fly from Boston to California to kill somebody to prevent a labor strike. And so they tailed the two hitmen, and they were trying to catch who was paying them, but they couldn't quite get it, and they finally decided that they were getting too close to someone getting killed. And so they entered the hotel room that these killers had rented and made it clear that they had been there by leaving things obviously moved from where the guns were hidden. And... Of course, the hitmen immediately caught on and took off in a car and were speeding to the airport when the police stopped them because they were speeding. And so they ended up being arrested for speeding and then were brought before a grand jury where they lied. So they ended up being prosecuted for the lie, not for the attempted murder, because we couldn't get the evidence of the attempted murder other than they had traveled with weapons. So oh. 
you know, these things do happen and you, you know, just in everyday life, well, maybe not everyday life for everybody, but for the mafia, at least everyday life. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that highlights an important problem. There, There's this important question of not incarcerating people for just having bad thoughts, but also when people are dangerous, it's it's really horrible to think that you can't charge them just because you've been successful in preventing the crime. And I know sometimes we would do things in the terrorism arena. I wonder if you did this too, Barb, where we could charge an aggravated ID theft. If you had someone who was involved in, in being radicalized and planning terrorist activities, sometimes you would see other crimes that you could charge. They wouldn't get you a really long sentence, but they would at least incarcerate that person for some period of time. But there is always that tension. How do you get the balance just right here? Uh, we did use that. In fact, it's, it's sometimes referred to as the Al Capone theory of prosecution. It comes out of organized crime. The idea being, of course, that Al Capone, uh, you know, was a gangster and bootlegger and gangland uh, murderer. Um, and witnesses were too afraid to testify about those things. But what they could prove was that he failed to report all of this income to the IRS. And so he was convicted of tax charges. And in the same way, Joyce, we used any kind of tool that was available to us. So if we had classified information that a person was um, involved in a terrorist organization, was perhaps plotting something, and it was difficult to prove that thing, if they also were engaged in some sort of fraud, identity theft, um, bankruptcy fraud, immigration fraud, credit card fraud, um, if there was any other kind of crime, oftentimes we would use that sort of low-hanging fruit just to disrupt them from their plans. And uh, as you say, it often didn't bring a lengthy prison term, but it might be sufficient to disrupt the plot. Well, we'll have to wait to see what happens to peanut butter and jelly. I expect we'll see an indictment of them. Um, as Barb says, they can't be tried just on the, the complaint. But what I'm waiting to see is whether there are new and additional charges, more information, maybe some inkling of who the friendly nation was when we finally see an indictment. So, you know, I'm not much for manicures, but my daughter is, and I've been um, reading about Olive and June. She says it's the best. What do you guys think about it? It is a terrific product, and I, I know that, Barb, um, your daughter's going to love it. It is a whole system for manicures, and Joyce, you've been using it, haven't you? I have. You know, this is maybe too much information, but I haven't gotten a pedicure or a manicure uh, for the entire pandemic. I've learned how to do it at home. And a big part of that is using Olive and June's system because it's incredibly easy to use. What about you, Kim? Yeah, I agree totally. I've only been to the salon once during the pandemic to get a mani-pedi right before my wedding. And honestly, after that, I went back to Olive in June because I like doing it at home better. I love the selection of colors. Um, they're really vibrant, and it feels like a cool way to treat myself. It is, and it's easy to use, and it saves you the time of going to the beauty shop. Um, with Olive and June's Manny system, you can have show-stopping salon-perfect nails at an affordable price. Their Manny system is the secret for getting amazing nails at home without the salon price tag. Everything you need comes in one box. Olive in June is so easy to use, especially with the Poppy, which is their patented brush handle that makes it easy to paint with both of your hands. 
The nail polish lasts for seven days. For me, it really lasts closer to two weeks, and it doesn't ship. Olive and June is a game changer. Now my nails always look professionally done, much more affordably than I could ever see myself doing at home. But now I love it. Getting beautiful, salon-perfect nails at home is a dream come true. And with Olive and June, it's possible. Your new nail life is here. Visit oliveandjune.com sisters and use code SISTERS for 20% off your first Manny system. This is an exclusive offer you can only get here. That's oliveandjune.com sisters. Use the code SISTERS for 20% off your first Manny system. I want to take a moment to thank our wonderful listeners for always sending in such great questions. We really love this segment of the show. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question today comes from Marty from Newport News, and he asked that we discuss the Trump depositions that have been ordered. And Joyce, can you answer that and tell us about what legal risk he might be encountering in an upcoming deposition? Well, look, the former president is at legal risk every time he opens his mouth while he's under oath. And he's apparently going to have to do that here. The judge has said no later than October 31st. This is a case that was brought by some people who are uh, uh, from Mexico, but American citizens. They were protesting outside of Trump Tower after, you know, Trump made that dramatic entrance after riding down the elevator or the escalator and announced his candidacy as president and referred to Mexicans as rapists and criminals. And he did that repeatedly. And so these folks actually put together signs and put together some costumes and were protesting out on the public sidewalk in front of Trump Tower where they were roughed up by Trump's henchmen. And they've sued. These are civil charges, assault, tortious interference with their right to protest. And now a judge has said that Trump has to sit for a deposition. I'm sure that he won't be very appreciative of that. I'm sure that he'll push back. But the judge in the Bronx has given him this hard cutoff in late October. And who knows what sort of trouble he could subject himself to. And, and, you know, right behind this, he's got two other cases where he may well be deposed. One is the defamation case by Summer Zervos. And then the case involving E. Jean Carroll, the woman who alleges that Trump raped her over two decades ago, that case has a Second Circuit hearing in early December. And depending on its outcome, that case could be back in business and he could be deposed there. So who knows what trouble he can get himself into. Yeah, you know, I think it's no surprise that um, when Robert Mueller was trying to interview him or depose him, his lawyers worked really hard to make sure he didn't have to open his mouth and testify. There was written questions that lawyers could review and answer. I know Donald Trump has probably been deposed many, many times in the past, but I, I think as as president, he has developed such a reckless way of speaking that um, he is, uh, I'm not sure he's capable of knowing or telling the truth. I think everybody in our audience would agree with both of your comments about the likelihood of his committing some crime while he is being deposed. But I also want to point out that because damages are an important issue here, 
he can be asked how much he could pay them. In other words, he can be asked about his net worth, about his income, and of course we know that he would do anything other than answer those questions. So these are going to be very interesting depositions. But let's go on to our second question from Mary Kim. And she asks about whether the Supreme Court can be dissolved or how uh, can it ever be anything but political at this point. And I think we should talk about the uh, Supreme Court Commission, which has issued a uh, partial, tentative, temporary, initial report uh, while it continues its investigation. And let's focus maybe on that. And yeah. Kim, you want to go ahead with that answer? Sure. I mean, I will just start out by saying I don't think we, even people who um, may be very disheartened at what's happening with the U.S. Supreme Court should not want the Supreme Court to be dissolved. We have a a system of checks and balances with three branches of government, and the Supreme Court is the highest level of the judiciary branch that lays down law. And we want that to to be a fair arbiter uh, of disputes that come up and be a check on the other branches the way that the other branches ought to be a check on it. And in that vein, uh, the Biden administration, the White House, set up a commission to examine how the Supreme Court might be reformed. This came out of calls during the last presidential campaign from progressives in the Democratic Party who wanted the court to be expanded. More justice is put on the court, uh, uh, packed, if you will, to pack the court. Um, and Joe Biden and the candidate did not seem to be um, in favor of packing the court. President Biden doesn't seem to be either. He established this commission to come up with ideas. And the commission doesn't seem really keen based on this interim report that they released, which doesn't really have any recommendations, just does some analysis. They don't seem to be really keen on the idea of packing the court but because, among other reasons, it would just make it more political it, when a Democrat, uh, when the Democratic Party is in power, they would put more justices on the court. And then when the Republicans are, they would do it as well. And that could serve to erode faith and confidence in the court rather than betray it. But one thing I thought was interesting is that a lot of commissioners spoke um, favorably about this idea of term limits by limiting the amount of time that the justices serve on the court to make them something more like what happens on lower courts, which is ju- uh, judges, federal judges serve, and then they reach a point where they can qualify for something called senior status, which means that they don't have to retire, but they have a reduced caseload. They don't sit in every case. They have a full pension. So constitutionally, um, Congress can't take the pay away for a judge who is installed for a lifetime tenure. But if you do this, then you're not doing that. Um, And and Congress could then uh, ostensibly put into place a similar kind of senior status for Supreme Court justices where they would not be among the nine, but they could rotate if somebody had to recuse themselves and sit in on certain cases. We see Justice uh, retired Justice David Souter sits on the First Circuit sometimes because he was tired of his life in Washington and being a Supreme Court justice, but he wasn't tired of of uh, being an, an active juror. So I think there's something like that that could get the support. It's also supported, um, a bi- has bipartisan support in Congress, uh, term limits for justices. So I suspect that we might see um, something like that come out of this commission. Now, whether Congress acts is always uh, an, an open question. 
Some say that it might require a constitutional amendment. I don't think so, so long as you don't mess with the pay. Um, but I think those are some of the, that's one of the solutions that might be proposed in the months ahead. Thank you, Kim. I think it's really interesting that they didn't make any recommendations. They just laid out some pros and cons of various alternatives, and that apparently even in the final report, they aren't going to make recommendations. Uh, So let's go to our last question, which is actually uh, addressed to me, and it's from Judy. It says, is there a correct lapel, right or left, one should wear a pin or name tag? I have seen them on right and left lapels. Well, that's a perfect question for me. And let me just say that in terms of name tags, as the chief operating officer of the American Bar Association, where name tags were very important, you always wear your name tag on your right shoulder. And the reason you do that is so that when someone shakes your hand, they can look at the right side of your lapel without it looking obvious that they don't know your name and they're looking up your name. I wear my pins for television on my left lapel, and the reason I do that is because some of my fans had written to me saying that the cryon was covering my lapel pins if I wore it on my right side, which was my natural side to put the pin on. So I now always wear my pins on the left shoulder, except for one top that has a big bow on the left shoulder, so I can't wear it. So the answer is for name tags, right shoulder, for pins, anywhere that it looks nice on you, unless you're on television and have a cry-on that's going to cover it. (laughs) That is the most detailed explanation. (laughs) I never knew any of that, but it's fascinating. It is. I love it. I'm going to cry on that for days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love you. You are the funniest people ever. Thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch for all our new amazing t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, buttons, pins, water bottles, and more. But especially now that the cold weather is coming, look at those hoodies and a t-shirt to wear under it. And for all you knitters out there with Joyce, you want to definitely get a tote bag to carry your knitting in. This week's sponsors are Helix, Thrive, and Olive and June. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag Sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We do love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sistersinlaw. I actually looked for a pin that would be oh. relevant to this, so I looked peanut for butter. a peanut butter and jelly <laughs> pin. I, looked for, I found peanut butter and jelly earrings, but no That's pin funny. that no was pin. cute enough. I looked for a Band-Aid pin. And there, there <laughs> oh, yeah, was some. Good. Yeah. That's good. So I, and then I thought, well, if all else fails, I'll wear my own box of... <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. That's really good. The bigger, the better. Just glue a, glue a safety pin onto the back of that jar of peanut butter and put it up there. Oh, yeah, a whole jar of peanut butter. Oh, my God.
My husband what? has peanut butter every single morning for breakfast, and so we buy the really large size peanut butter containers. I don't. I couldn't even wear that as a necklace. Maybe as a hat. <laughs> My husband loves peanut butter, too, but, you know, I have to say Thank he's you. been cutting back because of Noom. Yeah. Can I Me, too. Cook? I love it, too, but I've, I've, cut, I've had to cut back. No. It's so delicious. I've been eating grapes for a dessert. Noom has grapes. 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 Dessert. Noom yeah. loves grapes. <laughs> Noom loves grapes. I, you know what else I, I have? And this is a new like, alternate recipe. Um, I slice up apples and, and sprinkle cinnamon powder on it. It's very good. That's oh, delicious, that's and you idea. could also it's it's this snack. time of year. Yeah, you yeah. can core, core an apple, put a little bit of cinnamon in the place where you took out the core, and put in you know a cinnamon stick. Stick it mm. with some cloves and mm. cover it with. I know this is not so good. You could cover it with water. Just put a little water over it. But I use diet root beer because that's my favorite thing, and bake it. Bake and it, you have yes. the best baked apple. Hmm. I like it baking is apples. A fabulous dessert with no this calories. It's so Zero delicious. Oh, I okay. love baked apples. And if you apples. get like the fresh apples, you don't even need any sweetener. You don't need anything. No. Just some sort of. Yeah, you put cinnamon, you put nutmeg. You know, oh, I just yeah. throw a couple raisins down in the cord area and put cinnamon oh, over sorry, it and just use water. Noom does not compute. No raisins no. for Noom. No. <laughs> don't tell Noom you eat raisins. Don't cinnamon tell Olivia. Safe. I'll be in so I'm much gonna trouble. I'm going to tell Olivia you ate. I'm going to be a narc. 